0: part one of book one of on the laws this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by geoffrey edwards on the laws by marcus tullius cicero translated by charles duke young part one of book one marcus tullius cicero has composed this treatise in the form of a dialogue in which himself his brother quintus and atticus are the interlocutors cicero supposes this dialogue to take place near his villa at arpinum on the banks of the river lyris and beneath the shade of a grove in the midst of which grew an ancient oak. The sight of this tree reminds Atticus of the oak which Cicero had described in a poem which he once composed in honor of Marius. From this circumstance he takes occasion to compliment Cicero on his poetry. The conversation then turns upon history, and Quintus observes that he knew no one better able than his brother to write the history of his country, and presses him to undertake it this cicero declines and turns the discourse to the subject of universal justice and the law of nature and nations atticus i recognize this as the very grove and this oak too as the oak of arpinum the description of which i have often read in your poem on marius if that oak still exists this must certainly be it and indeed it appears extremely old quintus cicero yes my atticus it does exist and always will exist for it is a nursling of genius no such long-lived stock can be planted by the care of the agriculturalist as may be sown by the verse of the poet atticus how can that happen my quintus And what sort of seed is that which poets can sow? For you seem to me, in eulogizing your brother, to be putting in a word for yourself. Quintus. You may say that, if you please, but as long as the Latin language is spoken, an oak, which will be called Marius's oak, will never be wanting in this place. And, as Sivola said, of my brother's poem on Marius, it will. Extend its hoary age through countless years. Unless, indeed, you believe that your Athenians have been able really to preserve the olive in their citadel, free from death, or that tall and slender palm tree which the people of Delos show to this day is the same which Homer's Ulysses says that he had beheld at Delos and there are many other things in many places the memorial of which endures beyond the term of any possible natural existence this acorn-bearing oak then out of which there once did fly jove's golden eagle dazzling as the sun is at present the genuine tree but when storms and the lapse of ages shall have wasted it there will still be found an oak on this sacred spot which will be called the oak of marius atticus i do not doubt it but there is one question which i would ask not of you but of the poet marcus himself whether the tree is indebted for its celebrity to his verses alone or whether the circumstance which they record really happened in the history of marius marcus cicero i will answer you frankly but not till you have first informed me what you think of the tradition which asserts that not far from your house at rome proculus julius beheld our first king romulus walking after his decease and that romulus told him that he had become a god and that his name was quirinus and he ordered a temple to be dedicated to him on that spot. Tell me also what you think of the tradition of the Athenians who maintain that not far from your Athenian villa, Boreas made a stolen match with Orithia, for so runs the story. Atticus, for what purpose do you ask me such questions as these? Marcus, for no purpose at all, unless it be to convince you that we had better not inquire too critically into those remarkable accounts which have been thus handed down by tradition atticus but there are many statements in your marius which are the subjects of inquiry as to whether they are true or false and some people expect the strictest accuracy from you because the events of which you speak are fresh in men's memory and because you are speaking of one who like yourself was a native of arpinum marcus i myself also should be unwilling to gain the reputation of a liar but yet some of these inquisitors my atticus show great ignorance of the subject who expect an exact statement of matters of fact in a work of this nature as if the author were not a poet but a witness and yet i doubt not that these critics really believe that numa did converse with egeria and that the eagle did really replace his cap on the head of the first tarquin quintus i understand you my brother you think that the laws which ought to bind a historian are quite different from those which require to be observed in a poem marcus certainly inasmuch as the main object of the former is truth in all its relations while that of the latter is amusement although in herodotus the father of greek history and in theopompus we find fables in great numbers atticus i have now found the opportunity which i wanted and i shall not let it slip marcus what opportunity atticus atticus men have long ago asked or rather implored you to write a history for they conceive that if you undertook this literary enterprise the result would be that even in the historical department we should be nowise inferior to greece and if you will listen to my opinion it seems to me that you owe this gift not only to the affection of those who are delighted with literature but to your country too in order that since you have saved her you should endeavour likewise to adorn her for a good history is a desideratum in our national literature as i know by my own experience and as i have often heard you declare now there is no man more likely than yourself to give general satisfaction in a work of this kind since by your own avowal it is of all the forms of composition that which most demands the eloquence of the orator wherefore i entreat you undertake this work and devote your time to this employment which has been hitherto unknown to our fellow-citizens or at least neglected by them for after the annals of the chief pontiffs than which nothing can be more interesting we come to the book of fabius or of cato whom you are always eulogizing or to the treatises of piso Fannius, and venonius though perhaps one of them may be more vigorous than another still are they not all extremely defective the contemporary of Fannius, coelius and Tipater, adopted a bolder style of expression he had indeed some energy was rude and rough without much polish or skill but he served as a sort of warning to his successors to write with more accuracy and eloquence but unfortunately he had for his successors a gelius a claudius and Aselio, who far from improving on him relapsed into the dullness and insipidity of earlier writers i scarcely need to mention attius his garrulity is not without neatness though he has derived it not so much from the learned grecian authors as from the petty latin scribblers in his style he is prolix and full of conceits which he indulges in the most shameless manner his friend sisena far surpasses all our historical writers unless there be any whose compositions have not yet been published and of whom we cannot judge he however has never gained a name as an orator among those of your rank, and in his history he betrays a sort of puerility. He seems to have read no Greek author but Clitarchus, and he is content to imitate him. But even if he were to succeed in his imitation, he would still be far enough from the best style. Therefore the task of historian of right belongs to you, and we shall expect you to accomplish it unless quintus can bring forward any reasonable objections quintus i have nothing to say against it indeed we have often talked over the subject together and i have made the same request as yourself but there is a slight disagreement between us on the subject atticus how so quintus why respecting the epoch from whence he should commence his history for in my opinion he ought to go back to the most distant ages since the accounts that have hitherto been published respecting those times are so written as never to be read but he himself on the other hand wishes to confine himself to the events that have happened within the recollection of his own age so as only to describe those public affairs in which he himself bore a part. Atticus. In this respect I rather agree with him, for the grandest events in Roman history are probably those that have taken place within our own recollection, and then too he will be able to illustrate the praises of our noble friend Pompey and describe the memorable year of his own consulship which i would much rather have related by him than anything about romulus and remus as the saying is marcus i know my atticus that you and other friends have long urged me to this undertaking nor should i be at all unwilling to attempt it if i could find any free and leisure time but it is vain to enter on so extensive a work while my mind is harassed with cares and my hands are full of business. Such an undertaking requires a perfect freedom from care and political business. Atticus, what can you mean? What leisure time did you ever find for those other works of which you have written more than any other of our Roman authors? Marcus, why, certain spare times occur to every man, and these I make a rule not to lose. For instance, if I spend a few days in rusticating at my country seat, I employ them in composing a part of those essays which I may have determined to write. But an historical work cannot be begun at all unless one has leisure time prepared beforehand, nor can it be completed in a short time. And my mind is thrown into a miserable state of suspense when, after having fairly commenced some work, am drawn away in some other direction nor do i find it as easy to recover the train of ideas in work so interrupted as to bring works when begun at once to a conclusion atticus your argument then would show that you require an appointment as ambassador or some similar free and unoccupied holiday for your purpose marcus i would rather trust to the holiday to which i am entitled by my age especially as i do not refuse after the method of our ancestors to continue the custom of giving magisterial advice to my clients and thus to discharge the offices of old age gracefully and honourably and in such a situation i should be able to give as much time as i might choose not only to the work which you require but to others still more extensive and important atticus i fear that few will accept such an apology for your retirement and that you will be obliged to speak in public as long as you live and i regret this the more as you have already changed your manner of delivery and have instituted another style of eloquence so that as your friend roscius the actor in his old age, was forced to give up his most brilliant modulations, and to adapt the instrumental accompaniments to a slower measure. So you also, my Cicero, find it necessary, daily, to relax from those lofty conflicts of oratory to which you have been accustomed, so that your eloquence is already not much removed from the gentle conversation of philosophers. And since the extremest old age is still capable of undergoing that amount of exertion, I see that your retirement will never be allowed to excuse you from pleading causes. Quintus. But I indeed think that the citizens of Rome might be induced to sanction your retirement from public life if you still consented to plead in legal matters. So, whenever you please, I think you ought to try. Marcus your advice my quintus would be excellent if there were no danger in taking such a step but i fear that in thus seeking to diminish my labours i should rather increase them and that i might find that i had united to the toil of public causes and prosecutions which i never attempt to plead without full preparation and meditation the addition of this professional interpretation of the laws which would not distress me so much by its labour as by its tendency to deprive me of that time for deliberation as to what i should speak without which i never ventured to enter on any considerable pleadings atticus why should you not then in this spare time as you call it at present explain these very points to us and write us a treatise on the civil law with more accuracy than others have hitherto employed. For, even from your earliest youth, I remember that you used to study the laws when I used to go, like yourself, to hear the lectures of Sivala. Nor did I ever find you so addicted to oratorical pursuits as to neglect your legal studies. Marcus. You seek to engage me in a long discussion, my Atticus. However, I will not hesitate to undertake it, unless Quintus prefers some other subject. If not, I will tell you all I know about it, since at present we seem to be at leisure. Quintus, I shall listen to you with the greatest pleasure, for what better subject can be discussed, or how can the day be spent more profitably? Marcus, let us go then to our accustomed promenade and to the benches where after we have had walking enough we may lie down nor shall we want for entertainment while asking different questions of one another atticus let us go then and enter on our investigations as we walk along the bank of the river under the shadow of its foliage and now begin i beg of you to explain to us your opinion respecting the nature of civil law marcus my opinion why that we have had many great men in rome who have made it their profession to expound it to the people and explain its doctrines and practice but though they professed to be acquainted with its great principles they were in reality familiar rather with its minuter technicalities for what can be grander or nobler than the jurisprudence of a state? Or what can be so insignificant as the office of those men who are consulted as advocates, necessary as it is for the people? Not that I think that those who adopt this profession have been altogether ignorant of the principles of universal legislation, but they have united their practice of this civil law, as they call it, just so much as gives them a hold on the interests of the people but the great principles of jurisprudence are unknown and less necessary in practice what then is it that you invite me to or what are you exhorting me to to write treatises on the rights of common sewers and partition walls or to compose formulas of stipulations and judgments these Have been already most diligently prepared by many persons and are lower than the topics which i suppose you expect me to discuss atticus but if you ask what i expect i should reply that after having given us a treatise on the commonwealth it appears a natural consequence that you should also write one on the laws for this is what i see was done by your illustrious favorite plato the philosopher whom you admire and prefer to all others and love with an especial affection marcus do you wish then that as he conversed at crete with cleinias and megalos of lacedaemon on that summer's day as he describes it in the cypress groves and sylvan avenues of gnosis often objecting to and at times approving of the established laws and customs of commonwealths, and discussed what were the best laws, so we also, walking beneath these lofty poplars, along these green and umbrageous banks, and sometimes sitting down, should investigate the same subjects somewhat more copiously than is required by the practice of the courts of law. Atticus. I should like to hear such a discussion marcus but what says quintus quintus there is no subject which i would rather hear argued marcus and you are quite right for take my word for it in no kind of discussion can it be more advantageously displayed how much has been bestowed upon man by nature and how great a capacity for the noblest enterprises is implanted in the mind of man for the sake of cultivating and perfecting which, we were born and sent into the world. And what beautiful association, what natural fellowship, binds men together by reciprocal charities! And when we have explained these grand and universal principles of morals, then the true fountain of laws and rights can be discovered. Atticus. In your opinion, then, it is not in the edict of the magistrate, as the majority of our modern lawyers pretend nor in the twelve tables as the ancients maintained but in the sublimest doctrines of philosophy that we must seek for the true source and obligation of jurisprudence marcus for in this discussion of ours my atticus we are not inquiring how we may take proper caution in law or what we are to answer in each consultation that may indeed be an important affair as in truth it is and at one time it was supported by many great men and is at present expounded by one most eminent lawyer with admirable ability and skill but the whole subject of universal law and jurisprudence must be comprehended in this discussion in order that this which we call civil law may be confined in some one small and narrow space of nature for we shall have to explain the true nature of moral justice which must be traced back from the nature of man and laws will have to be considered by which all political states should be governed and last of all shall we have to speak of those laws and customs of nations which are framed for the use and convenience of particular countries in which even our own people will not be omitted, which are known by the title of civil laws. Quintus. You take a noble view of the subject, my brother, and go to the fountainhead in order to throw light on the subject of our consideration. And those who treat civil law in any other manner are not so much pointing out the paths of justice as those of litigation. Marcus. That is not quite the case, my Quintus. It is not so much the science of law that produces litigation as the ignorance of it. But more of this, by and by. At present, let us examine the first principles of right. Now, many learned men have maintained that it springs from law. I hardly know if their opinion be not correct, at least according to their own definition. For, Law, say they, is the highest reason implanted in nature, which prescribes those things which ought to be done, and forbids the contrary. And when this same reason is confirmed and established in men's minds, it is then law. They therefore conceive that prudence is a law whose operation is to urge us to good actions, and restrain us from evil ones and they think too that the greek name for law nomos which is derived from nemo to distribute implies the very nature of the thing that is to give every man his due the latin name lex conveys the idea of selection a legendos according to the greeks therefore the name of law implies an equitable distribution according to the romans equitable selection and indeed both characteristics belong peculiarly to law and if this be a correct statement which it seems to me for the most part to be then the origin of right is to be sought in the law for this is the true energy of nature this is the very soul and reason of a wise man and the test of virtue and vice but since all this discussion of ours relates to a subject the terms of which are of frequent occurrence in the popular language of the citizens we shall be sometimes obliged to use the same terms as the vulgar and to call that law which in its written enactments sanctions what it thinks fit by special commands or prohibitions let us begin then to establish the principles of justice on that supreme law which has existed from all ages before any legislative enactments were drawn up in writing or any political governments constituted quintus that will be more convenient and more sensible with reference to the subject of the discussion which we have determined on marcus shall we then seek for the origin of justice at its fountain-head when we have discovered which, we shall be in no doubt to what these questions which we are examining ought to be referred. Quintus. Such is the course I would advise. Atticus. I also subscribe to your brother's opinion. Marcus. Since then, we wish to maintain and preserve the constitution of that republic which Scipio, in those six books which I have written under that title, has proved to be the best. And since all our laws are to be accommodated to the kind of political government there described, we must also treat of the general principles of morals and manners, and not limit ourselves on all occasions to written laws. But I purpose to trace back the origin of right from nature itself, who will be our best guide in conducting the whole discussion. Atticus you will do right and when she is our guide it is absolutely impossible for us to err marcus do you then grant my atticus for i know my brother's opinion already that the entire universe is regulated by the power of the immortal gods that by their nature reason energy mind divinity or some other word of clearer signification if there be such all things are governed and directed. For, if you will not grant me this, that is what I must begin by establishing. Atticus, I grant you all you can desire, but, owing to the singing of birds and babbling of waters, I fear my fellow-learners can scarcely hear me. Marcus, you are quite right to be on your guard, for even the best men occasionally fall into a passion, and they will be very indignant if they hear you denying the first article of that notable book entitled, quote, The Chief Doctrines of Epicurus, close quote, in which he says, quote, That God takes care of nothing, neither of himself nor of any other being. Close quote. Atticus, pray proceed for i am waiting to know what advantage you mean to take of the concession i have made you marcus i will not detain you long this is the bearing which they have on our subject this animal prescient sagacious complex acute full of memory reason and counsel which we call man has been generated by the supreme god in a most transcendent condition for he is the only creature among all the races and descriptions of animated beings who is endued with superior reason and thought in which the rest are deficient and what is there i do not say in man alone but in all heaven and earth more divine than reason which when it becomes right and perfect is justly termed wisdom There exists therefore since nothing is better than reason and since this is the common property of god and man a certain aboriginal rational intercourse between divine and human natures but where reason is common there right reason must also be common to the same parties and since this right reason is what we call law god and men must be considered as associated by law again there must also be a communion of right where there is a communion of law and those who have law and right thus in common must be considered members of the same commonwealth and if they are obedient to the same rule and the same authority they are even much more so to this one celestial regency this divine mind and omnipotent deity so that the entire universe may be looked upon as forming one vast commonwealth of gods and men and as in earthly states certain ranks are distinguished with reference to the relationships of families according to a certain principle which will be discussed in its proper place that principle in the nature of things is far more magnificent and splendid by which men are connected with the gods as belonging to their kindred and nation for when we are reasoning on universal nature we are accustomed to argue and indeed the truth is just as it is stated in that argument that in the long course of ages and the uninterrupted succession of celestial revolutions there arrived a certain ripe time for the sowing of the human race and when it was sown and scattered over the earth it was animated by the divine gift of souls and as men retained from their terrestrial origin those other particulars by which they cohere together which are frail and perishable their immortal spirits were ingenerated by the deity from which circumstance it may be truly said that we possess a certain consanguinity and kindred and fellowship with the heavenly powers and among all the varieties of animals there is not one except man which retains any idea of the divinity and among men themselves there is no nation so savage and ferocious as not to admit the necessity of believing in a god however ignorant they may be what sort of god they ought to believe in from whence we conclude that every man must recognize a deity who has any recollection and knowledge of his own origin now the law of virtue is the same in god and man and in no other disposition besides them this virtue is nothing else than a nature perfect in itself and wrought up to the most consummate excellence there exists therefore a similitude between god and man and as this is the case what connection can there be which concerns us more nearly and is more certain therefore nature has supplied such an abundance of supplies suited to the convenience and use of men that the things which are thus produced appear to be designedly bestowed on us and not fortuitous productions nor does this observation apply only to the fruits and vegetables which gush from the bosom of the earth but likewise to cattle and the beasts of the field some of which it is clear were intended for the use of mankind others for propagation and others for the food of man innumerable arts have likewise been discovered by the teaching of nature whom reason has imitated and thus skilfully discovered all things necessary to the happiness of life with respect to man this same bountiful nature hath not merely allotted him a subtle and active spirit but also physical senses like so many servants and messengers and she has laid bare before him the obscure but necessary explanation of many things which are as it were the foundation of practical knowledge and in all respects she has given him a convenient figure of body suited to the bent of the human character for while she has kept down the countenances of other animals and fixed their eyes on their food she has bestowed on man alone an erect stature and prompted him to the contemplation of heaven the ancient home of his kindred immortals so exquisitely too has she fashioned the features of the human face as to make them indicate the most recondite thoughts and sentiments for our eloquent eyes speak forth every impulse and passion of our souls and that which we call expression which cannot exist in any other animal but man betrays all our feelings the power of which was well known to the greeks though they have no name for it i will not enlarge on the wonderful faculties and qualities of the rest of the body the modulation of the voice and the power of oratory which is the greatest instrument of influence upon human society for these matters do not all belong to the present occasion or the present subject and i think that scipio has already sufficiently explained them in those books of mine which you have read since then the deity has been pleased to create and adorn man to be the chief and president of all terrestrial creatures so it is evident without further argument that human nature has also made very great advances by its own intrinsic energy that nature which without any other instruction than her own has developed the first rude principles of the understanding and strengthened And perfected reason to all the appliances of science and art. End of part one of book one recording in memory of Mitchell Edwards.